Hello. Welcome to Science Factual. Prepare yourself for factual download. Sequence commencing. love that old-fashioned swing. Time to shake a leg on down to the speakeasy and have a regular ring-a-ding-ding as we take a trip in the Wayback Machine to the 1930s. I'm your host, Reese Hendrick, and welcome to this Decade Dive edition of Science Factual, the show that dives into the facts behind your favorite science fiction. Joining us for this time warp is Portland comedian Jocelyn Boyer. We met up after her Paint and Laugh show on St. Patrick's Day to talk about the pivotal decade and the science fiction that was shaped by it. Also, you'll get to hear a super funny set from Jocelyn at the end of the episode, so make sure you stick around for that. Also, if you're needing lights, immersive art, dark wave, distorted guitars, and EDM to get yourself through the last bit of winter, then take advantage of our pre-sale for Into the Abyss presented by Black Bulb Magazine on Friday, March 31st at 8pm. This is going to be an eclectic night with a crew of talented artists and musicians putting forth a kaleidoscope of sounds and visuals for the gloom of winter. Featuring live music by Marceline, Wednesday, Ruby Luster, and a Tyson DJ set, with visual arts by Has Mood, Primal Screaming with Friends, and Mundu. Stop by Stage 722 at 722 Southeast 10th Avenue in Portland, Oregon, and follow at Black Bulb Magazine for more info and ticket options. See you there. Since we won't be focusing on any one property in particular, I'll skip the larger SPOILER ALERT! SPOILER ALERT! Because for now, let's sift through the Dust Bowl that is the 1930s with a look at the decade as a whole before we jump into the interview with Jocelyn. The facts section after the interview will delve further into the decade with more of a sci-fi perspective. The 1930s, aka the Dirty 30s, as it came to be known in the United States due to the Dust Bowl, is a decade which was defined by a global economic and political crisis that culminated in the Second World War. 
The Dust Bowl, by the by, refers to a period of severe dust storms causing major ecological and agricultural damage to American and Canadian prairie lands from 1930 to 1936, and in some areas, clear through till 1940. Caused by extreme drought coupled with strong winds and decades of extensive farming without crop rotation, fallow fields, cover crops, or other techniques to prevent erosion, it affected an estimated 100 million acres of land traveling as far east as New York and the Atlantic Ocean. The drought caused mass migration for folks the likes of Woody Guthrie, who was part of an exodus that served as the inspiration for the Pulitzer Prize winning novel The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. Food shortages, multiple deaths and illness from sand inhalation, and a severe reduction in the going wage rate were also symptoms of the drought. U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, elected in 1933, introduced a program of broad-scale social reforms and stimulus plans called the New Deal in response to the crisis. The 30s saw the collapse of the international financial system, beginning with the Wall Street crash of 1929, the largest stock market crash in American history. The subsequent economic downfall, called the Great Depression, had traumatic social effects worldwide, leading to widespread poverty and unemployment, especially in the economic superpower of the United States and in Germany, which was already struggling with the payment of reparations for the First World War. I think they finally paid that off in like 2010. Crazy. The Soviet's second five-year plan gave heavy industry top priority, putting the Soviet Union not far behind Germany as one of the major steel-producing countries of the world, while also improving communications. First-wave feminism made advances with women gaining the right to vote in South Africa in 1930, for whites only, of course, Brazil in 1933, and Cuba the same year. Following the rise of Adolf Hitler and the emergence of the National Socialist Party as the country's sole legal party in 1933, Germany imposed a series of laws which discriminated against Jews and other ethnic minorities. Germany soon adopted an aggressive foreign policy, remilitarizing the Rhineland in 1936, annexing Austria in 38 and the Sudetenland in the same year, before invading Poland in 1939 and starting World War II near the end of the decade. Italy likewise continued its already aggressive foreign policy, defeating the Libyan resistance in 1932 before invading Ethiopia in 1936 and then Albania in 1939. Both Germany and Italy became involved in the Spanish Civil War, supporting the eventually victorious nationalists led by Francisco Franco against the Republicans, who were in turn supported by the Soviet Union. The Chinese Civil War was halted due to the need to confront Japanese imperial ambitions, with the Kuomintang and the Chinese Communist Party forming a second united front to fight Japan in the Second Sino-Japanese War. Lesser conflicts included interstate wars such as the Colombia-Peru War from 1932 to 1933, the Chaco War from 32 to 35, and the Saudi-Yemeni War in 34 as well as internal conflicts in Brazil, Ecuador, El Salvador, Austria, and British-controlled Palestine from 36 to 39. In other words, the world seemed pretty ripe for another global conflict. Agricultural disarray didn't just affect the United States, with severe famine taking place in the major grain-producing areas of the Soviet Union between 1930 and 1933, leading to anywhere between 5.7 to 8.7 million deaths. Major contributing factors to the famine include the forced collectivization in the Soviet Union of agriculture as a part of the first five-year plan, 
forced grain procurement combined with rapid industrialization, a decreasing agricultural workforce, and several severe droughts. A famine of similar scope also took place in China from 1936 to 1937, killing 5 million people, with severe flooding affecting the country during the decade as well. There were several significant advancements made in the realms of technology and science during the decade. For instance, in the art of filmmaking, the golden age of Hollywood enters a new era after the advent of talking pictures, or talkies, in 1927 and full-color films in 1930. More than 50 classic films were made in the 1930s, most notable were Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz. The musical, perhaps the genre best place to showcase the new technology, took over as the most popular type of film with audiences, with the animated musical fantasy film Snow White and the Seven Dwarves from 1937 becoming the highest grossing film of the decade in terms of gross rentals. But we'll get to sci-fi musicals in just a bit. In 1930, Warner Brothers released the first all-talking, all-color widescreen movie, Song of the Flame. In 1930 alone, Warner Brothers released 10 all-color, all-talking feature movies in Technicolor and scores of shorts and features with color sequences. Ub Iwerks, who would go on to create Mickey Mouse, not Walt Disney, produced the first color sound cartoon in 1930, a Flip the Frog cartoon entitled Fiddlesticks. And in the same year, Howard Hughes produced Hell's Angels, the first movie blockbuster to be produced outside of a professional studio independently, and at the time the most expensive movie ever made, costing roughly $4 million and taking four years to make. You know, speaking of 1930, astronomer Clyde Tombaugh discovered Pluto, which goes on to be announced as the ninth planet in the solar system until 2006 when it was demoted to dwarf planet status. Aww. The new soundtrack and photographic technologies that became readily available in the 1930s prompted many films to be made or remade, such as the 1934 version of Cleopatra, which used lush Art Deco sets that landed at an Academy Award. In 1931, RCA Victor introduced the first long-playing phonograph record, and Edwin Armstrong invented the wideband frequency modulation radio in 1933, improving the ability to transmit quality audio further distances. Within the same tech vein, radar was invented in the decade known as RDF or Radio Direction Finding by Robert Watson Watt in 1938. Universal Pictures begins producing its distinctive series of horror films, which came to be known as the Universal Monsters, featuring what would become iconic representations of literary and mythological monsters. The horror films or monster movies included many cult classics, such as Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, King Kong, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and other films about wax museums, vampires, and zombies. These films led to the stardom of names such as Bela Lugosi, Lon Chaney Jr., and Boris Karloff. Airmail service across the Atlantic Ocean began, as did the first intercontinental commercial airline flights, further connecting the world of tomorrow. In 1935, Howard Hughes, flying the H-1, set the land plane airspeed record of 352 miles per hour. Why, I say that Howard Hughes is a dynamo. And apparently also deeply disturbed. 
Hughes did it again in 1937, flying the same H-1 racer fitted with longer wings. The ambitious Hughes set a new transcontinental airspeed record by flying non-stop from Los Angeles to Newark in just 7 hours, 28 minutes, and 25 seconds, beating his own previous record of 9 hours, 27 minutes. His average ground speed during the flight was only 322 miles per hour, though. In 1933, the 3M company marketed Scotch tape, and in 1935, Kodachrome is invented, being the first color film made by Eastman Kodak. In 1936, the first regular high definition, then defined as at least 200 lines of television service from the BBC based at Alexandra Palace in London, officially began broadcasting. The German dirigible airship Hindenburg explodes in the sky above Lakehurst, New Jersey on May 6, 1937, killing 36 people. The event leads to an investigation of the explosion and the disaster causes major public distrust of the use of hydrogen inflated airships and seriously damages the reputation of the Zeppelin company. That is, of course, until the release of Zeppelin 1 in 1969. <laughs> Speaking of Germans, Albert Einstein's equations formed the basis for creating the atomic bomb in the 1930s with nuclear fission discovered by Otto Hahn, Lisa Meitner, and Fritz Strassmann in 1939. On a lighter note, the frying pan becomes the first electric lap steel guitar ever produced in 1931. It was designed to capitalize on the popularity of Hawaiian music in the 1930s. The instrument was made of cast aluminum and featured a pickup that incorporated a pair of horseshoe magnets that arched over the strings. Pretty neat. Speaking of music, you had artists like Cole Porter, who was a popular musician in the 1930s with two of his songs, Night and Day and Begin the Big Win, becoming number one hits in 1932 and 1935 respectively. Although I'm partial to that banger he dropped in 34 called Anything Goes. Begin the Big Win, however, was of the swing genre, which had begun to emerge as the most popular form of music in the United States starting around 1933. Also in the decade, the electric bass guitar is invented by Paul Tutmark of Seattle, Washington in 1936, which really changes the pace of things music-wise, listening to the rest of the decade turning into the 1940s. So, as it turns out, the 1930s were kind of super important, and not just because Prohibition was repealed in 1933. Although, that is super important, and hail Satan for that. In olden days, a glimpse of stocking was a look of something shocking, but now God knows anything goes. Good offers too. Alrighty, let's foxtrot our way into this interview with Jocelyn, shall we? Hey, uh, Jocelyn, happy St. Patrick's Day. Thank you. Yeah. I just heard that, like, St. Patrick is actually a really bad man, so people have just been like, happy Irish Day. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know. It's 2023, so yeah. everyone has a problem with everything, and you just uh, roll with it. Yeah, I'm more like happy Irish Republican Army Day. 
Fuck yeah, there you go. That's too long for me to remember and say, but I like it. <laughs> what What did St. Patrick do, aside from being like a, a religious figure, which in and of itself is kind of, you know, like there is some fishiness going on there. I honestly did not research it because okay. I... You're just besmirching the good name. Yeah, I know. See, this is an example of me not researching before I say something, but I mean... Sounds like a Google moment. <laughs> uh, St. Patrick, bad? Was St. Patrick really saintly or a criminal? Mm. Ah, they claim that he was something of a tempestuous warrior, attacking druids and their idols and cursing kings and their kingdoms. Sounds like a pretty rad dude, although the druids are kind of... I am pro-druid, so I'm not into, like, the... What is a druid? They're like the wood folk, you know, like, uh, with the runes and the and the fairies and all that, you know? Yeah, does this sound cool? He's the, killing uh, them? Yeah, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. No, druids are very cool. Uh, Ask any nerd and they're into druids. See, had me up until that point. Now I, I stand by my statement. Fuck yes. St. Patrick. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right on. Well, fuck St. Patrick. <laughs> Folks, the voice you hear other than my own, this is Jocelyn Boyer. Hi, Jocelyn. Hey, what's up? What's up? Thank you for joining me. We just had the most fun painting and laughing with you. <laughs> that was such a fun time. I Amanda and I did the, uh, what is it? It's the laugh and, and paint. What is it? Laugh and paint. Paint lab, yeah. Paint and lab. And it's a comedy show and a paint show. So I like to sum it up with painting with a comedic twist. Yes. And we had tonight a little luck. We sure did. <laughs> uh, some would say a shitload. Because what we were going to paint was a leprechaun shitting into a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, which mm -hmm. we will proudly display in our home. Gladly. And not just shitting, but shitting gold coins uh, into a pot of gold. Oh, see, okay, yeah. Amanda did that. I had him actually, he actually left a little poop in Because, <laughs> you know, like, that's a little bit more nefarious. I don't know. Your leprechaun wasn't really a leprechaun. <laughs> that's how you can tell. Yeah, he, was, he was just a random dude from the street who wandered in and took a shit in my pot of gold. Fair enough, yeah. Exactly. I'm into it. So, uh, Jocelyn, what's your Instagram? It is just Joshen without the G, with Josh. Okay. So if you type in just Joshin, I should pop up. But yeah, just Joshin with Joss, or you can search my name, Jocelyn Boyer. Very cool. So how did you get started in stand-up comedy? I got started about six months ago, but I've been wanting to do it for a while. And comedy has always been something that like, I really have held close. My very first time on stage was 2020 in California. Oh, okay. And then I picked it up again six months later, or six months ago. When did the pandemic happen? I don't even know. Anymore. 2020 in March. Okay. It was like. So like three years ago. Yeah. Everything shut down March 19th, which was my son's birthday because we were to go cosmic tubing on his birthday and uh, everything fucking shut down. What's cosmic tubing? Is that when you take too much acid? And <laughs> well, I'm in it. Like, <laughs> that would be a trip. But no, it's uh, we go up to Mount Hood and it is tubing at night. Mm. With all the lights, it's so much fun. So yeah, yeah. yeah that does sound fun. Okay, yeah. well I can get into that. I would probably take acid for that too. <laughs> cool. Okay, so how to stint in 2020? Getting back into it now. Yes. Very cool. So then, what was your first exposure to science fiction? Because we're here to talk about the 1930s. Cue the jazz, right? I'm sure that your first exposure to science fiction wasn't like the War of the Worlds broadcast. No, it was not because I was not born then. No. I was born in 86. I know I sound young, but uh, yeah, I was born in 86. And one of the first movies I can remember was Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Yeah. <laughs> it came out in 88. 
Um, my mom was like all about letting me watch all kinds of horror. I was more into like sci-fi horror. So Alien was like something I got into, but not as much as Killer Clowns. Like Killer Clowns had a mix of comedy yes. and horror and just enough of like it being out there that you're like, oh, this could be real. You know, <laughs> clowns never really scared me. Uh-huh. And I know that my voice just broke when I said that. <laughs> but at the same time, like, Killer Clowns from Outer Space is such a great fucking concept. Mm-hmm. And it is also a great movie. I hesitate to call it a B-movie because it yeah. almost has, like, awareness of itself. And that's why it's fantastic. <laughs> I rewatched it today and because I know we were going to talk about it. And I was like, let me rewatch this. And there's a scene where they bring out their uh, balloon dog. And it's like, roof, 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 roof. <laughs> And I'm like, what the fuck? The clowns look scary as hell. The clowns are super scary. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, I got to give that a rewatch this Halloween season for sure. Shout out Prime. (laughs) Shout out Prime. Well, no, no, no shout out Prime. (laughs) He just makes enough money. I know. Fuck him. But also, it's on Prime. If you got Prime, it's free. (laughs) Yes. Right on. So what was your first exposure then to something from the 30s? From the 30s, I would say definitely Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. Yep. Those were, like, really prominent for me. And then also, I feel like it's not from the 30s, but Creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I couldn't put a year on it, but I want to say early 60s yeah. was probably in that range. But I love that movie, too. Yes, yeah. I think Frankenstein, for me, honestly, was, like, such a interesting story in itself because for me it like was speaking to me like i was frankenstein being put together by society expectations experiences with family experiences with friends and so like we all have that capability of being a monster because of all our experiences morphed into one but like we have to learn to overcome that so the allegory was certainly not lost on you yeah Mm -hmm. very good yeah i like that that take on it for sure it's been done so many times, but I feel like the earliest iterations of Frankenstein on film really capture the essence of the novel. Uh-huh. Yeah, because now if you look at iterations of Frankenstein, it's basically an action movie uh-huh. that has the story as the backdrop, uh-huh. whereas the story and the underlying themes and kind of messages that are there really come through with even the way that the scenes are are conveyed because the book reads like a script almost. You could take a lot of directional cues just from the exposition of the novel. So it was really well done, including Bride of Frankenstein, because it does bring in another part of like the nature of existence, which is finding a partner. And I will say that I think a lot of it comes with technology. The more technology has advanced, the less storytelling there is because there's more like action happening to keep someone's attention for four hours. But like, I think that's another thing that's kind of getting lost, too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and technology always does really influence science fiction. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I also want to kind of get into how the Great Depression influenced science fiction in general in the 30s, because like, even though it caps the October 1929 is when it goes down, if I'm not mistaken, whatever. It's not like we're on the brink of an episode right now. <laughs> Fuck it. Let's go. Yeah, no. Get uh, your facts straight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'll really matter when the nukes start going off. Um <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, people were like so desperate for any sort of imaginative release from their reality 
that they were not only adapting classic stories to film that everybody knew. That was definitely happening in the 20s, too, with more proliferation of, like, you know, cinema houses and stuff. But it really pops off in the 30s with, like, adaptations of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, H.G. Wells' works and things like that. And I really think that the Great Depression lended to that desire to want to, like, that escapism that we now are very much ingrained in yep. with our various, you know, devices and means of, of consuming media. Goes back to technology. Back then, it wasn't as accessible to watch a new movie. You had to really make an effort and dress up and go to, like, a movie theater. Yeah, it was a whole thing. Yeah, and yeah. Then even, like, when I was growing up, I remember Titanic was, like, the longest movie ever. Yeah. And then, yes, it was. Yeah. It's, and then, like now it's like, that's like child's play. It's like yeah, nothing. Sure. Yeah. We, we do see some epics. And then you also see like multi-part series like Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. or whatever. Or like, oh, my God. Uh, James Cameron speaking of Titanic is shoving Avatar once again <laughs> down our throats. Oh, I yeah. hate it. <laughs> do you have any like particular sci-fi literature from the 30s that stands out? I'm so excited. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Animorphs. Animorphs. That was my thing growing up. Spider-Man, of course, all the comics, but Animorphs. (laughs) Sorry. I thought, so I asked from the 30s. I was like, is there there an iteration of Animorphs that I'm not? Is Okay, the time traveler? Is that what's going on? (laughs) No, but that's great. I do love Animorphs too. Animorphs is awesome. Covered it with David Keldahl in an episode. I grew up in the book fairs. All up in the Animorphs and the Goosebumps section. So I dig it for sure. But <laughs> do, you, do you happen to have any like from nineteen from the 30s? Like, so for, for me, like Brave New World by Aldous Huxley stands out but. a lot. Yeah, no, that's cool. I mean, it's, it's totally fine. Green Gables. I, sure. That was a pretty old book. That's, that's sci-fi classic. Yeah, of course. Yeah. No, I will be honest. Not completely <laughs> redheaded girls or aliens. Okay. <laughs> Maybe just her. Okay. Just her. Just her. Just her. That's true. <laughs> Shit. Uh, well, reading is hard for me. I might be dyslexic. Del- Dyslexia. No, what is it? Dyslexic. Yeah. And I have a speech might, of me. Yeah, that's cool. Although there are, you know, like reading strategies for the dyslexic, and that shouldn't exclude you from reading 1930 sci-fi. <laughs> no, I'm, I kid. If it's typical for you, I apologize. But there are audio <laughs> Right <laughs> So no excuses. Yeah, I want. I listen to murder podcasts on my audiobook. Which so. what's your favorite? Oh, gruesome! Oh, yeah. Shout out to gruesome and gruesome. also uh, because I caught up with gruesome. And I was like, well, shit, you guys are taking too long. Um, That'll happen. <laughs> that will definitely happen with podcasts. Yeah. So then I started listening to like uh, another. I was just was like murder podcast. Yeah. Like gruesome. Oh shoot! I forgot the name of it. The paranormal couple. Oh my gosh. The conjuring. Oh, it'll come to me. All right. All right. <laughs> Moving on. Although, okay, can I bring up something that I just thought about? High ass thoughts. Of course. And like, are aliens considered science fiction anymore because of the fact that the government has said that they now exist? So we know that they're like, now we have proof that they exist. Well, so the government has acknowledged that there's such a thing as unidentified aerial phenomena. We can read the lines. I, I I agree, right? Like, let's call a spade a spade, right? Right. But at the same time, uh, it is still science fiction and will continue to be so, even if they make themselves known, uh-huh. because we can then further speculate should they not completely annihilate us. 
Yeah. You know, because if I was an alien race looking at how we're misusing this planet and all of its resources, I'd be like, oh, let's introduce something like, oh, I don't know, the coronavirus and try to get like a bunch of them like knocked off so that then they'll all the infighting and stuff, you know, yeah. but it would be in their best interest to not let us get to the point of mutually assured destruction because then they can't use the planet. That's true. Yeah. Which is why a lot of War of the Worlds. Because the the whole ending. Yeah. You know. Super interesting. Oh, my gosh. When they broke it down the first time I saw the Tom Cruise edition, because I love Tom Cruise. Only the the characters, not the guy. Okay. Okay. I'm I'm glad that you did separate his characters from the man. I mean. And that's that's a generous term there. A little bit. Why? What else did he do? And he was a minority reporter. Oh, no, I thought, no, I I know. I. Oh, what is what is Tom Cruise done? I mean, like, I know he's in Scientology yeah. and he's fucking weird. Yeah. Like, weird, weird. There are allegations that he has uh, fornicated with fish. Allegations. With fish? Yeah. I mean, based on a scale of, like, one to awful, that seems like. It's not so bad, right? They have a five-second memory. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, Wait, I'm sorry, but I mean, how is the mouth? Bi- okay, that is gonna be a deep dive. I got I have not heard that rumor. Yeah, go down the Tom Cruise fox fish rabbit hole. All right, okay. enough about Tom Cruise and his various dalliances, <laughs> his love of tuna. Yes, chicken of the sea. <laughs> All right, let's right. not choke this chicken. No. But I would choke Tom Cruise, that tiny, tiny wincy <laughs> space. All right. Uh, cool. So getting into literature from the 1930s, uh, the aforementioned Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, I would say that that's a staple. Another one that I want to bring up is called Odd John by Olaf Stapleton. It's super interesting. Oh, wait, wait. Are you taking pictures of my car? I am. Oh, no. Man, you got to pay to work. Oh, we're, 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 we're just doing that interview, but we can move. You just got to go. I'm on top of it. I park illegally all the time. I know. Why would I? I'll move. <laughs> yeah, it's too many dollars. <laughs> it's like, no, thank you. No, 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 no. Okay. Uh, Sorry about that. Okay, going back. I know. I'm glad that we figured it out. Yeah, we have light here, too. Fuck yeah. yeah. There we go. No, I saw the flash and I was like, mm. nope, that's it. it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And then I'm like, um, are you giving me a ticket? Like, yeah. what's, what's the deal? And he's like, no, I towed the car. So I'm like, oh, okay, good. I'm glad my car wasn't towed then. Because <laughs> I parked there so many times during the open mic. Oh, yeah, of course. So. Yeah. All right. I'm ready. Well, we're, we're now located elsewhere in Portland. We, <laughs> we were parked outside of Brewery 26, but now we're uh, in a random parking lot. Hey, that's what happens. When Just as with... good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> End up in park, <laughs> random parking lots. Yeah. Yeah, that's what happens. We have an adventure. Nice. Yeah, like science fiction. Yeah, exactly. Love it. All right. So we were talking about Odd John by Olaf Stapledon. Mm-hmm. And we were at the point where I'm just going to go on. And uh, it was first published in 1935. And it was one of the first seeing the world from a mutant's point of view books. It's subtitled A Story Between Jest and Earnest, which I think is I'm like, I love that. And although it pulls no punches on how the Ubermensch would treat humans, and the Ubermensch is an idea of philosophy that was proposed by Nietzsche that has to deal with, like, how would the ultimate person, if you want to put it in 2023 terms, would act, you know, like, without the confines of morality or, you know, having to consider limitations, I guess. I'm butchering that because, because I'm not, like, a scholar on Nietzschean philosophy. 
but it is a super interesting concept. In other words, it's not like your more typical modern superhero story, save maybe Black Adam, or mm-hmm. you had mentioned, uh, what, what was it? There was something about uh, Superman when he oh, tried. Oh, Brightburn. Brightburn. It was like, oh, shit, what did I say? Uh, I've never heard of this. Yeah. Okay. It sounds awesome. So, which brings me back to my question. When you say mutant, is it like X-Men mutant? Yeah, so, I mean, mutant in the sense that they have, like, extra human ability okay okay whether that is strength intelligence or otherwise okay well yeah Yeah. dang x-men ideology has been around for a while um yeah so brightburn is a a movie that came out a while ago and uh it's about if superman basically was a little shithead and decided he's just to fucking use those powers to give her whatever he wants. He doesn't care who he hurts. So yep. he's just like, he's killing people. He's being creepy. He's like a school shooter wannabe, but like with a cosmic level. And the idea of like the evil superhero was so intriguing for me because it like really took you through the ideology of like, well, what if this man of steel who was so good was like, a shithead stands for truth justice and Mm -hmm. needs to be the american way after i forget what it is now but uh, so yeah i mean that is it's a super interesting concept because like with most superhero scenarios starting with superman we take it for granted that the guy will spend most of his time acting as a kind of elite first responder service you know cleaning up disasters or preventing the more challenging train crashes or armed robberies or earthquakes and so on right Mm -hmm. Now, if we take the superhero idea seriously for even 10 seconds, why should this godlike creature think that his, like, top priority is to rescue beings who are, to him, about as significant as mice are to us? Because we are entitled. We are entitled. We don't think, hey, you have this ability. You need to, like, fucking save us. But if he does something wrong or, like, maybe breaks a car, then everyone hates him. Yes. I, well, you see that trope a lot in the superhero like arc, but also just fundamentally, I mean, even if you think about your average human, you could probably save a whole lot of mice, right? Like yeah. if you put your mind to it, but that would be an unusual career choice. Stapleton, however, goes back to his first principles and asks what a superhero might find themselves doing that wasn't essentially just like rescuing mice. Mm-hmm. The result is a book that's interesting, if not totally convincing insofar as that The obvious problem is that a mouse, even a very clever one, isn't going to be able to write a good book about what it's like to be human. But, you know, Stapleton does try, at least, and we should give him credit for that, because the idea of, like, it's like the idea of perfection. You can't Mm -hmm. necessarily conceive perfection. Well, I feel like it's one of those things, too, like, there's no mutants to be offended that he's trying to write from, like, an experience of them. Well, that's true. That That is true. But to, you know, like even infer that this is what a superhero would be like, you know, what yeah. I mean? is to say that like it, it's to put a human ide- idea to it and it wouldn't be it wouldn't have a human's perception because well, it would be that like depends. I mean, it, with Superman and even well, well, Superman's different than something like Spider-Man. Spider-Man yeah. was a human who became super. Yeah, but Superman was raised by humans. So it sure. goes back to nurture versus nature. Mm. And also it depends on if alien life forces have compassion and a range of emotions. It's not like they're robots. Well, we could, we can get into the whole how, you know, cyborgs and AI like or like machine races would likely be the ones to explore the galaxy because then they're not beholden to biological like you know suits. But this is like Portland, okay? Some weird. He's like he's got a black light. 
Yeah, I mean, must not look at them because then it's going to draw attention to us. Okay, don't worry, I got a taser. I and I have mace. Oh, a taser is so fun to use. It's your Portland starter kit. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Fun fact, my wife, when I met her, we have a meet cute where we were waiting for the same train that was late. And then I walked her home after we got off of the train together. Yeah. So I had my mace in my pocket. Well, yeah. (laughs) Gotcha. So I watched while you were sleeping. I love that movie. (laughs) Fuck yeah. But also you were prepared. Yes. Good to be prepared in Portland for sure. Anytime. Anytime. Anywhere. In bed. That's why the key sure. is so confusing sometimes. You want to be dominated, mm. but you also want to be prepared that you might throw an elbow like... Nice, but a sexy <laughs> elbow. Yeah, well, it depends. I mean, uh, a little too handsy. Okay. Elbow down. Elbow for real. <laughs> yeah. Bet. Watch some heed warning those who should encounter Jocelyn and get too handsy. That's right. right. Let's bring it to films. Because we talked about Frankenstein and like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Bride of Frankenstein. That's like the first half of the decade. And there are more apocalypse-based films, like The End of the World or La Fin du Monde in its native French, which is one of my favorite beers. Uh. That kind of speaks again to that Great Depression thing where it's like, what is the end of the world going to look like? Yeah. And that has changed over time. Now you can basically put on a a Putin mask and and have a red button in front of you, and that'll that'll be what it looks like. Yeah. Although two years ago, you could have just as easily put on a Trump mask. Do you remember, uh, were you around for Y2K? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, people were fucking going nuts. Was I around for Y2K? I don't know. What you got? I don't know. Uh, okay. I'm 33. Okay. But, like, that's very flattering. I'll take that as a compliment. Hell yeah. Yeah. So, other films include The Lost City, which ties in some pretty out there concepts. Just peep the first paragraph of this synopsis, all right? Like, this is just what Wikipedia teased this up as. And then I, I went into a, la- a rabbit hole after that because. <laughs> It mentions something that really peaks. We want to talk about aliens and shit. Here we go. Scientist Bruce Gordon, which is a great sci-fi name, comes to a secluded area in Africa after a series of electrically induced natural disasters have originated from the area. There he finds the crazed Zolok, last of the Lemurians, in a secret complex inside of a mountain. Now, if you don't know about Lemuria, it was a continent that was proposed in 1864 by zoologist Philip Slater, theorized to have sunk beneath the Indian Ocean, later appropriated by occultists in supposed accounts of human origins. Then you can tie in the whole alien, you know, fucking Giorgio Tsoukalos aliens meme. <laughs> Insert that meme here. The theory was discredited with the discovery of plate tectonics and continental drift in the 20th century, or maybe that's just what mainstream archaeology wants you to think. Wasn't this film banned in several countries? I, I could, like, I would imagine so. I, I mean, feel like it was banned in several countries for, like, showing animal, like, trans-human, like, animal mixed with human. I'll have to look into it. Yeah. I, that was, like, my research nice. expertise was, like, oh, shit, it was banned. Thank you for elevating the episode. <laughs> no, I'll have to check it out for sure. Yeah, that's my job. <laughs> yeah, totally. But the Lemurians really, like, the hypothesis was proposed on an explanation for the presence of lemur fossils in Madagascar and in India, but not in Africa or the Middle East. Biologist Ernest Haeckel's suggestion in 1870 that Lemuria could be the ancestral home of mankind caused the hypothesis to move beyond the scope of geology and zoogeography, ensuring its popularity outside of the framework of the scientific community and therefore into the science fiction community. 
So with that, I, I could see that there is that component to it. I'll have to look in further to it and actually find a copy. It's so hard to find good copies of this stuff. You know yeah. what I mean? Like there is archive. Dot org, uh, that, that's a great resource. I've found a lot of really good, uh, like that's what I watched Barbarella on and the quality on that was superb, super into it. Oh yeah. Other notable films are the Invisible Man adaptation of the H.G. Wells novel. The Invisible Man was recently remade. I don't yeah. know if you. Yes, in, in 2020. Yeah, I need, it's on my watch list. I need to watch, have you seen it? Yeah, I saw the Invisible Man remade with, what's her name from, um, Handmaid's Tale. Oh, she's like in everything right yes. now. Yes, God, put a gun to my head. <laughs> it was like really well made. I will say for a remake, I was like, oh, this is going to be so boring, whatever. It's been done a hundred times, but it, yeah. it, it was good. Oh, I have some notes about the Invisible Man, too. Lamb on me. All right. Elizabeth Moss. There we go. Yes. Shout out Elizabeth Moss. Hell yeah. Okay, so H.G. Wells, the Invisible Man shows man's dark side and explores what happens when he has no consequences or empathy. And I think that goes hand in hand with social media right now because a lot of people, they feel invisible. So they feel like they can say and do whatever they want and harass people and like tear people down just because they either didn't find a joke funny or because they just are fucking assholes. Well, and they're, they're emboldened by that separation too. Yeah. You know, and the, the concept of the invisible man really does speak as well to kind of like the ubermensch thing with odd john you know like if you had this superpower what would you do with it mm-hmm. you know it, it kind of really it forces you to ask that question of yourself oh yeah yeah so it's definitely um, something to think about things to come which is another hg wells adaptation i, I don't want to get too far into that but i feel like it's we're primed to experience the events of that film a hundred years <laughs> after it's set yeah. so just a brief look into it it's Christmas 1940, and every town resident John Cabell fears that war is imminent. When it breaks out, the war lasts for 30 years, except now it would last about 30 minutes. Yeah. This was written before the atomic age. Oh, shit. Yeah, so it's thinking about, you know, like a ground war-based thing. Yeah. It destroys the city that he's in and ushers a new dark age of plagues and petty despots. But there is hope in the form of Wings Over the World, a group of pacifist scientists and leaders led by Cabell. Their dream is to build a utopian society on the ruins of the old. But first, they'll have to unseat the latest ruling tyrant. So, I mean, like, it is crazy how we are so close to that. Yeah, but also just the fact that, like, taking out one tyrant sometimes is not enough. Yeah, I think we just need a big old reset. Yeah. 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 Getting back into classics of the age, we have Dr. X and the Return of Dr. X, which is referenced in the song Science Fiction Double Feature for Rocky Horror Picture Show. Same with Flash Gordon, uh, which had two iterations in the 30s, one in 36 and one in 38. Also, shout out Sagan Genesis and Arlo Weyerhaeuser for the interview on that episode. It's episode 49. Uh, also, shout out Michael Phelps. He covered Rocky Horror Picture Show, and it was super fun. I love your episodes. They are a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, also, I can't move on from there without giving a shout out to the Clinton Street Theater. Amanda and I saw the Rocky Horror Picture Show there while they were still running it. I think it was the night before Halloween, right? Oh, it was yeah. off the chain. So if you get a chance to go experience Clinton Street Theater, do yourself a favor and check it out for sure. I'm gonna definitely check it out. Very cool. All right. Well, so let's get into the infamous War of the Worlds broadcast then. Oh, yeah. We are bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. 
I would say like this almost defines 30s sci-fi in a major way because of the proliferations of radio. Yeah. Because like you said, you have to make a whole meal of going out to the theaters yeah. if you can afford it. And if you saved up enough to get a radio, which was like the Mac Daddy form of media of, yeah. of the time, like the Mercury Theater on CBS was the shit. Mm-hmm. Like the hottest sketch show of our age. Oh. It was like Key and Peele or something like that. It was like the Well, no. Like, what of our age? I'm sorry. Excuse you. Living color. Okay. Well, maybe your age. That's... <laughs> no, but I, I don't... We were close. Yeah, we're, we're close. That was my favorite sketch comedy. Do love in living color for sure. I mean, it, what I mean more so is contemporary to like the 20 teens or like 2020. Mm. And when did Key and Peele stop? I want to say they stopped in like 2020. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Uh, but also, Dave Chappelle. Yes, of Dave course. Oh, you, yeah, you can't mention Key and Peele. All that. Get up to the. Oh my God! Yep. All that. Okay, I can. Well, then, then we're getting into like the Mad TV. All that. It's like shit. Yeah. Lowered expectations. <laughs> okay, Love it. Sorry. No, don't be asking me for fucking shit. I, I saw Aries Spears. Oh, God. I knew that. In West Palm Beach. Ooh, did you hear what he did? Did you see what he did? No. What did he do? No. Oh. Hold on. I almost don't want to know. You don't. You don't. It's oh. we had ish, too. Wait, is it about Jewish people? No, it's okay. worse. Oh, I feel like. Yeah, fuck it. It's worse. Uh, what is it? Like, uh, basically, child porn. No. Yeah. So they say it's a sketch and like uh, they were setting up a sketch, but it was a really weird sketch with two kids that their mom gave permission to have them in. But they're like using these kids who are like eight and ten and dressing the boy down in like just his underwear. And like it's like in the life of a, a pedophile and Aries Spears plays a pedophile. Oh, no. It's really... That's major. Yeah, it's super uncomfortable to watch. He, like, has a newspaper where he, like, cuts out eyeballs, and the little boy is, like, playing with trains, and then they instruct the kids to be sexual with... It's, like, really... And I was a huge Tiffany Haddish fan. Like, I'll be honest, I, I loved her. I was like, fuck yeah. That, and then the way that they defended it at first and was like, oh, the mom's just trying to get paid... And I was like, even so, this is not good. This is she not can't good. write the sketch. Yeah. I no, mean, I mean, like, she, the mom's not innocent. No, she, no. Like, definitely agency there. You see a lot of kids get exposed to this type of shit because of money. Oh, of course. Yeah. So, well, that is the driving factor. A hundred and a hundred percent. Sorry to ruin Arian's spirit. I was telling me it was the one person you were differing uh, up. But yeah, I, I, well, I love Will Sasso too. Will Sasso is great. I haven't heard anything about about Will Sasso. No. So yeah. Or Deborah Wilson. Deborah Wilson. Our uh, goat. I wish that she did more. Yeah. Yeah. I know. A handful of movies in that mad TV era. I mean, that also goes back to, like, racism in Hollywood and in society. So, like, it's not, uh, sometimes it's not even the fact that they don't want to do shit. It's the fact that they can't do it because there's so many fucking doors closed. A lot of Mad TV people didn't really lift off. Like, Stephanie Weir never did anything after. I mean, but that's not to say, like, Phil Lamar had great, uh, uh, he's one of the most prolific voice actors of all time, for sure. 
Shout out to Hermes Conrad, Futurama. Hell yeah. Uh, but it, Mayor. It, yeah, no, I totally understand. Oh, that is so disappointing. It's, yeah. Stri- I, striking Aries Spears uh, and unfortunately Tiffany Paddleplay. No, once you once you do that. All right. Mom, All right. should we get into War of the Worlds? Yeah, let's get into some more depressing shit. Right. <laughs> Aliens are coming to yeah. fucking harvest us. Finally. That shit, that, that was like traumatic for me when I saw our blood was being used as like fertilizer. And they were just like, oh, fuck it, let's see, see what we can grow out of humans. And I'm like, it's super gnarly. What? <laughs> I, I do love, I and I'll call it a Tom Cruise vehicle because it is more so about Tom Cruise than it is about the story. It's just like the story is superfluous to Tom Cruise being in an action scene. But uh, all right. He is such a great action scene. For, it's like, do you know why Tom Cruise runs so fast? He's five foot four. He's close. He's close to the heroes. He runs. Oh, oh, that's right. He does. That's, he's very good at that. He always the same one. That's true. <laughs> that's true. But he was, all, I mean, okay. I You know what? Hot take. He was pretty good in Rain Man, too, actually. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Yeah. He had me believing him in Jerry Maguire. I was like, sensitive and Carrie. Right. Fuck no. No. I saw it. I never watched it. I saw Or Top Gun. I know. I know. I refuse to see Maverick. Okay. It was good. Yeah, I've heard things, too. You know what was good, though? Like, was it possible? I love all of them. I don't care. Okay. I hope he keeps making them, you know. Oh, man. Keeps doing the crazy shit. Oh, oh, it's going to be like the crow. You think he's going to be like uh, Harrison Ford when in his 70s he's still going to be doing fucking... Do you know how many planes Harrison Ford crashed, by the way? Three, right? Three, yeah. (laughs) Like, after the first one, it would be like, take his fucking license away. (laughs) <laughs> Somebody needs to. My girl didn't he crash one recently though too? Like oh God, within the last five years, I feel like probably. Like take his fucking license away. John John Tra needs to give him some flight lessons for real and some dumb. All right, so the world of the worlds. <laughs> you like that segue? Yes. <laughs> was a Halloween episode of the radio series The Mercury Theater on the air, directed and narrated by Orson Welles as an adaptation of H.G. Wells' novel The World of the Worlds from 1898. H.G. Wells all over the fucking place with early sci-fi. Oh, yeah, he was like, I'm I'm in this bitch, okay? And it. Him and Jules Verne and Ted for Tad just going off. So, The Mercury Theater on the air is a radio series of live radio dramas created and hosted by Orson Welles. The weekly hour-long show presented classic literary works performed by Wells' celebrated Mercury Theater Repertory Company with music composed and arranged by Bernard Herrmann. Damn, he's like the Tyler Perry of the 30s. Saying. <laughs> That's a, that is an excellent, yeah, absolutely, comparison, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it just came to me. Kudos. All right. It was performed and broadcast live at 8 p.m. on October 30th, 1938, over the CBS radio network. The episode is famous for inciting a panic by convincing some members of the listening audience that a Martian invasion was in fact taking place, though the scale of panic is disputed as the program had relatively few listeners. Do you not remember the Hawaii accidental missile text messages that went out? No. Yeah. Oh my God, like a couple of years ago. Fucked up. It's like an emergency. Yeah, like you're fucked. The missile's on its way. Sorry. And then 10 minutes later, they were like, just kidding. Yeah. Well, so this it's a recurring theme then. Yeah. 
So some listeners only heard a portion of the broadcast and in the tension and anxiety prior to World War II, because shit was popping off relatively by this time. Hitler was, you know, being all sort of Hitlery over in Germany. People mistook it for a genuine news broadcast. Thousands of them shared the false reports with others or called CBS, newspapers or the police to ask if the broadcast was in fact real. Which, by the way, can I just point out, was not as simple as a tweet. You had to like. Yep. Full rotary. Yes. Yeah. So you were calling like. 10 people, that's 10 numbers. You had to dial in. You had to explain everything. You had to talk about your recipes and other shit. There was no call forwarding or, like, you know, second line either. No. There were, you know, gals, like, putting you through to St. Louis. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. that kind of thing. Like, and if you happen to catch one, otherwise it was just, like, you, it, it just didn't connect. Yep. Many newspapers assume that the large number of phone calls and the scattered reports of listeners rushing about or fleeing their homes prove the existence of a mass panic. But such behavior was never actually widespread. At the time, though, Paul White, the head of CBS News, recalls the initial hysteria that he experienced. He said, The following hours were a nightmare. The building was suddenly full of people in dark blue uniforms. Hustled out of the studio, we were locked into a small back office on another floor. Here we sat incommunicado while network employees were busily collecting, destroying, or locking up all scripts and records of the broadcast. Finally, the press was set loose upon us, ravening for horror. How many deaths have we heard of, implying that they knew of thousands? What did we know of the fatal stampede in a Jersey mall, implying that it was one of many? What about traffic deaths? The ditches must be choked with corpses. The suicides? Haven't you heard about the one on Riverside Drive, one reporter asked? It's all quite vague in my memory and quite terrible, but what I do remember is the sheer horror of it all. It's amazing, like, what the imagination used to do, because now we rely on looking at things, and now we can't even believe what we look at with deep fakes and, like, you know, Adobe Voco and shit like that. Yeah. We don't even know if it's real or not. Yeah, AI can now make hands. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, like, this this was people literally whipping themselves up to a Tuesday <laughs> and being like, yo, uh, are we legit getting invaded? We have no other way of knowing. You know what I mean? Like, and Orson Welles, if you've listened to the broadcast, is very interesting. Oh, yeah. It's scary. He's a scary motherfucker. Well, okay, so remember the purge? Yeah. Yeah, when they do the siren? If I hear the siren, I'm fucking running. I'm, I'm, I'm gone. I did so much crime last purge. I did so much crime. It was awesome. Yeah, I got away with a lot, actually. It was, it was great. Mostly financial crimes. I am Jewish. Yeah. Not a lot of physical crimes. Someone asked if I was Jewish. No? I know, right? I was like, no, but... Thank you. I know. I, I, was like, I wish. Yeah. Tell me why, though. And they were like, your vibe. Oh. And I was like, I'm a hard worker. I gotcha. Okay. Oh, okay. Hell yeah. But I think it's the nostrils. Okay. They're huge. I know. Okay. We got back to the nostril. <laughs> thing. I, I, I had a feeling we'd get there. I'm glad we did. All right, cool. We landed it. Much like on my nose, there's room for a 737 to taxi after landing there. So there's, we're good. We're, we're making it happen. So, yeah, I mean, the 1930s as a whole, you know, a great decade for science fiction. A lot of interesting new kind of staples and tropes and ideas coming to light, especially in film. I mean, we're switching a little bit more from classic literature to film and radio being the mediums that are, you know, taking over. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that literature goes away in the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. I would say it starts to dive off a little bit in the in the 60s and 70s, but like, I mean, literature is the foundation of science fiction simply because of the way the technology has evolved over time. Mm-hmm. Nearly 100 years later. 
Yeah. I mean, we're closer to the 20s, obviously, than the 30s, but I'm curious to see what, if we make it, the 2030s will bring. Oh, yeah, we are almost there. I was like, that seems so far away, but we are almost there. It's 2023. Um, I'll be honest, like, sometimes I think about the fact that we are in 2023, and I think back to, like, when I was watching these movies and being like, oh, I can't imagine what the future is going to be, but now I'm just kind of like... I mean, aliens could just show up like men in black, and I'd be like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. let's do it. Yeah, yeah, just coexist kind of thing. Yeah. I hope so. But you mean more like everywhere is like the men in black headquarters. Yeah, pretty much. I, I mean, mean, that would be kind of rad. I wouldn't mind well, how the worms making me coffee every morning kind of when thing. When did that, uh, that show B come out? The 80s? The lizard people? Who were, like, pretended to be us. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, well, it also ties into, like, a uh, conspiracy theory that, like, the people in power and, like, the riches. The reptilians. Yeah. Yeah, Of course. Yeah. Well, I always have my tinfoil hat on me, but I don't know if we have time to go down that rabbit hole. What I do want to know, though, Jocelyn, is what's coming up in your comedy schedule. Tell me more about Paints and Laugh and and what you're going to be doing and you slinging the ha-has around. (laughs) So, yeah, Paint and Lap is a twice-monthly comedy painting show. You come out, you'll get a canvas, paint supplies, and then comics will take you through a journey to create your next masterpiece. It was so much fun. Thank you so much for coming out. I'm so glad. Yeah, no, this is, I'm excited. I'm envisioning so much more happening with it. But for now, it's twice a month. Um, We have another one here at Brewery 26 on March 31st, and then two in April at Growlers off 82nd. Love that spot. One of my favorite places. I do Star Trek trivia there Thursday night. Shout out to the Joes. Hell yeah. Much love to them for the comedy scene, and I'm glad that they're further diversifying their comedy and community portfolio by having your awesome show as part of it. Thank you. So thank you for joining me. It's been super fun. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you around, Jocelyn. Thank you so much for having me on your, like, my first official podcast. Oh, great. Well, awesome. Fuck yeah. Bye, Thank you. Thanks again, Jocelyn, for meeting up and chatting about 30 sci-fi with me. Had a blast at Paint and Laugh, which I recommend for anyone to try. All right, now, since we've already taken a look at the decade from larger cultural and geopolitical standpoints, let's shift gears in that gorgeous 1933 Bugatti Atlantic, just one of six in the world that could have likely fed a small city throughout the term of the Great Depression, to more of a sci-fi point of view, as we now live in the time frame of a lot of futurist plot points coming out of the 30s. Good thing we've learned all of our incredibly important social lessons since then, right? Even people who don't read science fiction have likely heard the term the golden age of science fiction. The actual golden age of science fiction lasted from about the mid-1930s to the mid-1940s and is often conflated for general readers with the preceding age of the pulps, which actually took place from the turn of the 20s into the mid-1930s. The age of the pulps had been dominated by the editor of Amazing Stories, Hugo Gernsback, Sometimes called the father of science fiction, Gernsback was most famously photographed in an all-compassing isolator author helmet attached to an oxygen tank and breathing apparatus. Fucking nerd. For more on old Gernsback and amazing stories, check out last month's decade dive on the 1920s with guest comedian Robert Gresham for episode 68. Classic. 
The Golden Age dispensed with Gernsback the Isolator, coinciding as it did with the proliferation of American science fiction magazines and the rise of the ultimately divisive editor John W. Campbell at Astounding Science Fiction, who was a stickler for strict definitions and a dupe for Dianetics of all things. He oversaw a proto-market for science fiction novels which would only reach fruition in the 1950s, so we'll get into it during that decade dive in May. Most fans agree that the Golden Age began around 1938 to 1939, slightly later than the Golden Age of detective fiction, another pulp-based genre. The July 1939 issue of Astounding Science Fiction is sometimes cited as the start of the Golden Age. It included Black Destroyer, the first published story by A.E. Von Vogt, and the first appearance of Isaac Asimov with the story Trends in the magazine. Science fiction writer John C. Wright said of Von Vogt's story, this is the one that started it all. The August issue contained the first published story by Robert A. Heinlein called Lifeline. Ooh, Lifeline with Heinlein would have made a great on-air psychiatry radio show. Eat your heart out, Fraser Crane. <laughs> Robert Silverberg in a 2010 essay argued that the true golden age was the 1950s, saying that the golden age of the 1940s was a kind of false dawn. Until the decade of the 50s, Silverberg wrote, there was essentially no market for science fiction books at all. The audience supported only a few special interest small presses, up to that point. This period also saw the rise to dominance of authors like Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, Paul Anderson, Lee Brackett, Catherine Lucille Moore, aka C.L. Moore, who didn't use her initial name in order to hide her gender, but rather her side hustle from her main employer. That's not to say that many female writers throughout the Golden Age didn't use pseudonyms like Alice Mary Norton, who opted to use the first name Andre, among other names, to hide her gender in order to be taken more seriously as an author. We also have characters like number one Xenu fan and founder of Scientology L. Ron Hubbard, who we'll take a closer look at during the 40s decade dive, as he only really started getting published in 1938 anyway. Plus, we have more recognizable names like Robert A. Heinlein and Alfred Bester getting their start in the decade as well. Other notable literature from the decade includes F. Scott Fitzgerald's Tender is the Night in 1934, T. H. White's The Sword in the Stone from 38, J. R. R. Tolkien's The Hobbit from 1937, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World from 1932, John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath from 39, and Of Mice and Men from 37, Ernest Hemingway's To Have and Have Not from the same year, John Dos Passos' USA Trilogy, William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying in 1930, John O'Hara's Appointment in Sumara in 1934 and Butterfield 8 in 35, and Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind in 1936, which was later famously adapted into a film later in the decade in 1939. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Another interesting shift that occurred near the end of the decade was that Pulp Fiction magazines began to feature distinctive, gritty adventure heroes that combined elements of hard-boiled detective fiction and the fantastic adventures of earlier pulp novels. Two particularly noteworthy characters introduced during the time are Doc Savage and The Shadow, who would later influence the creation of characters such as Superman and Batman, two of the world's most iconic superheroes and recognizable fictional characters who first appeared in 1938 and 1939, respectively. Speaking of pulp publications, Science Fiction of the 30s is an anthology of science fiction short stories edited by Damon Knight. It was first published in hardcover by Bob's Merrill in January of 1976, 
a book club edition was issued simultaneously by the same publisher together with the Science Fiction Book Club and a trade paperback edition by Avon Books in March of 77. The book collects 18 tales by various authors originally published in the 1930s and exemplifying American magazine science fiction of that decade, together with a Ford and three essays on the period by the editor and a bibliography. The stories were originally published in Astounding Stories and Amazing Stories, the premier science fiction magazines of the time. The book reproduces period illustrations that accompanied the story's original appearances by H.W. Wesso, Leo Morey, Paul Orban, Howard V. Brown, Elliot Dold Jr., and Charles Schneeman, to name a few. The 30s fixed science fiction in the public imagination as having a sense of wonder and a can-do attitude about science and the universe, sometimes based more on the earnest, naive covers than the actual content, which could be dark and complex. But the golden age has come to mean something else as well. In his classic oft-quoted book on science fiction, Age of Wonders, exploring the world of science fiction from 1984, the iconic anthologist and editor David Hartwell asserted that the golden age of science fiction is 12, which kind of sounds like the answer to the biggest questions in the universe being something like 42. Hartwell, an influential gatekeeper in the field, was making a point about the arguments that rage until the small of the morning at science fiction conventions among grown men and women about that time when every story in every magazine was a masterwork of daring original thought. The reason readers argue about whether the Golden Age occurred in the 30s, 50s, or 70s, according to Hartwell, is because the true age of science fiction is the age at which the reader has no ability to tell good fiction from bad fiction, the excellent from the terrible, but instead absorbs and appreciates just the wonderful visions and exciting plots of the stories. You know, that sweet spot where you either can't or don't want to live anywhere but in the moment. We'll dive further into the literature side of things during the next decade dive as the Golden Age comes into full swing during the 40s leading into the 50s. Plus, the 30s brought about a lot of staples in the film industry as technology and the proliferation of picture houses increased during the decade. Let's run through a top 10 of the decade film-wise with an honorable mention to start with, the first sci-fi musical, Just Imagine, from 1930, which was bound to happen since the talkies hit the film scene with the advent of sound projection in the movies coming in around 1927. Just Imagine is a 1930 American pre-code science fiction musical comedy film directed by David Butler. The film is known for its art direction and special effects in its portrayal of New York City in an imagined 1980 where airplanes have replaced cars, numbers have replaced names, pills have replaced food, government arranged marriages have replaced love, and test tube babies have replaced, well, you get the idea. Scientists revive a man struck by lightning in 1930 and he is rechristened Single Zero. He is befriended by J-21 who can't marry the girl of his dreams because he isn't, quote, distinguished enough, until he is chosen for a four-month expedition to Mars by a renegade scientist. J-21, his friend, and stowaway single O visit Mars, which is full of scantily clad women doing Busby Berkeley-style dance numbers and worshipping a fat middle-aged man. Sounds awful. Not bad, not bad. But back in my time, we would get the big cold Steiner beer with the foam on the top. Ah, it was a pleasure. 
The film starts with a preamble showing life in 1880, where the people believed themselves the last word in speed. It switches to 1930, with the streets crowded with automobiles and lined with electric lights and telephone wires. It then switches to 1980, where the tenement houses have morphed into 250-story buildings connected by suspension bridges and multi-lane elevated roads. It's an interesting concept that really shows how people were starting to think in futurist terms. Also, you'll hear me say terms like pre-code, which refers to the Hayes Code, a self-imposed industry set of guidelines for all the motion pictures that were released between 1934 and 1968, which prohibited profanity, suggestive nudity, graphic or realistic violence, sexual persuasions, and depictions of rape. Getting on to some more prominent works, Jan Voss at Sci-Fius put together an excellent top 10 list of important sci-fi movies from the decade. It reads... In the 1930s, science fiction finally made the leap from European screens to the silver screens of Hollywood. More than anything, the science fiction invasion of the 30s can be attributed to Universal Studios' resurrection of Victorian horror stories, many of which had a clear science fiction element to them. The new talking pictures brought on a whole new style of acting and made possible the portrayal of more intricate and multi-layered plots. New breakthroughs in special effects, makeup, and color photography broadened the scope of what was possible on film. Alrighty, let's get into this list, starting off with the movie called simply... GOLD! GOLD is a smart, well-filmed, and very successful 1934 movie which marked the beginning of the end for German science fiction before the Nazis banned the genre. The story follows a German scientist who is, quote, recruited by a Scottish Bond-type villain to create gold out of lead in a massive underwater nuclear laboratory with the estranged daughter of the villain who becomes a potential love interest for the married hero. The picture is as much a suspense melodrama as it is a critique of capitalism and the speculation economy taking the side of the downtrodden worker. Hans Albers is in especially fine form and the performances are outstanding throughout. The cinematography by Fritz Lang favorite Gunther Rittau and the impressive sets and effects make this a standout science fiction film worthy of much greater recognition. Coming in at number 9 we have Dr. X which is an early color film from 1932 impeccably directed by Casablanca director Michael Curtis. It's a stylish and atmospheric old dark house thriller from Warner with a gruesome sci-fi twist. A series of perplexing murders in a perpetually night-enshrouded city lead the cops to a research department headed by a certain Dr. Xavier and a handful of eccentric scientists. Granted permission by the police to conduct his own investigation into the killings, Dr. X invites all of the suspects to his creaky old estate in order to flush out the killer by means of hooking everyone up to a futuristic lie detector machine and reenacting the murders with the help of his assistant, maid, and creepy butler and for some ill-advised reason, his daughter. The two-strip Technicolor lends the picture a murky green and fleshy faded pink that are ripped straight from the covers of a pulp novel, making it a standout classic. That brings us to number 8 and Cosmic Voyage, which is our first and only Soviet science fiction picture on the list. Kosmicheski Reis is a stunning, costly Russian moon landing adventure from 1936, partly inspired by Fritz Lang's Woman in the Moon. Thanks to the collaboration of legendary rocket scientist Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, it is also impressively accurate. Loosely based on Tsiolkovsky's 1983 novella On the Moon, the film follows the moon voyage of an elderly scientist, a young female professor, and a stowaway kid, their adventures on the moon, and their struggle to return home. 
Not only is this the best science fiction film to come out of the Soviet Union in the 30s, it is the best science fiction film to come out of Europe in the 30s. Portraying the shift in the power dynamic to happen between the 20s and 30s, and the US gradually taking almost sole responsibility for the production of science fiction movies for at least the next 15 years. At number 7 we have Flash Gordon. The 1936 film serial Flash Gordon was the first American space opera brought to the screen. It's high camp, silly, and loads of fun, and boasts good production values for a serial, as well as an unusually imaginative and original script straight from the pages of the comic strip. That the spaceships are held by visible strings and the dragons look like men in cardboard suits just adds to the fun. Alex Raymond's seminal comic strip was so successful that it only took it two years for it to find its way to the movie screen. Told within the serial is the classic story of famous American polo player Flash Gordon and his girlfriend-to-be, Dale Arden, who hitch a ride with Dr. Hans Zarkov on a space rocket in order to prevent the planet Mongo from colliding with the Earth. Flash goes up against the evil Emperor Ming, Voltan of the Hawkmen, King Cola of the Sharkmen, and other famous villains when he's not already battling orangopods, dragons, or robots. That's a busy fella. Up next we have Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which by many is considered as the best movie version of Robert Louis Stevenson's book. This 1931 film actually resulted in an Oscar win for lead actor Frederick March. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, in Paramount's classic adaptation, is beautifully filmed by Ruben Mamoulian and well acted across the board. It also features some stunning visual tricks such as March's transformation from Jekyll to Hyde in one single take, done with the help of an ingenious combination of makeup and tinted camera filters. Coming in at number 5 we have The Invisible Man, which is the most distinctly science fictional of Universal's classic horror franchise. This 1933 movie directed by James Whale took the world by storm thanks to the terrific acting of Claude Rain, astounding special effects, and a witty script laced with dark comedy. The Invisible Man is considered by some to be the best H.G. Wells adaptation ever made. From the first shot of Claude Rain entering the small inn to escape the blizzard outside with his upturned collar and hat, swathed in bandages and dark glasses, you know you're in for a treat. Number four on the list is pretty recognizable with King Kong, which was a juggernaut of its time as loud, daring, and unstoppable as its titular monster. It crashed into cinemas in 1933 and has refused to leave ever since. A lot can be said about the film's shortcomings when it comes to dialogue, characterization, plot holes, the general narrative scripting, and indeed the acting. Much of it is terrible. However, this is of little to no consequence being that King Kong is as ubiquitous as the building he climbs. That's the Empire State Building, just to clarify. Up next is another recognizable name, Frankenstein. At number three, we have the one film that is arguably an even bigger classic than King Kong. The road from Mary Shelley's influential 1818 novel to the 1931 Universal film was long and winding, the story having been altered and reimagined dozens of times in between in numerous stage plays, earlier films, and in the minds of the audiences. The script is flawed for that reason, but this is outweighed by standout performances by Boris Karloff as the monster and Colin Clive portraying Dr. Frankenstein. Now, we can't talk about Frankenstein without getting into The Bride of Frankenstein, which comes in higher on the list, of course, due to the iconic image of Elsa Lanchester as the titular bride we all know, regardless of whether we've seen the film or not, despite the fact that she turns up only at the very end of the movie. Gotta build that suspense, you know. 
Wrapping up the list at number one is Island of Lost Souls, which may seem a bit surprising, but Paramount's 1932 adaptation of H.G. Wells' novella The Island of Dr. Moreau stands out as perhaps the greatest science fiction movie of the 30s. This dark, atmospheric, and disturbing tale of a mad doctor trying to surgically speed up evolution and turn animals into humans predates the body horror and gore genre by several decades, raising issues not only of animal rights, but also of racism, colonialism, and the rising tide of Nazi-fueled Ubermensch ideology in 1932. Not to mention all them eugenics that have been going on since the turn of the 20th century. British thespian Charles Lawton, husband of the aforementioned Elsa Lanchester, owns the role of Dr. Moreau, creating one of the most memorable and charismatic villains in movie history. The Manimals, led by an unrecognizable Bella Lugosi in one of his finest moments, remain a brooding threat throughout the movie until they finally turn on their master and tormentor in a terrific scene with Lugosi chanting, You made us in the house of pain, Bartman! Made just before the Hayes Code was enforced, Island of Lost Souls delves into questions of sexuality, bestiality, evolution, eugenics, and religion in ways that few movies at the time dared. While not gory as such, the picture does not spare the viewer, describing in hints, sound, and parables that which it cannot show or say outright. If you haven't seen this movie, find it and watch it. It is utterly superb. We also definitely can't move on without mentioning the most grandiose and costly science fiction movie created during the 30s, Things to Come, from 1936. The movie was a belated answer to Germany's epic Metropolis, which H.G. Wells called, quote, the silliest of films, and apparently thought he could better its garbled vision of the future. Based on his own book, The Shape of Things to Come, he wrote not one, but something like six screenplays for director William Cameron Menzies. Six, because unfortunately, Wells was not a great screenwriter. As a futurist, Wells succeeds little better than Metropolis writer Thea von Harbaugh, describing the coming of World War II, which urges a return to medieval life, with crime barons ruling the ruins of society Mad Max style. There's also a mysterious sleeping disease turning people into zombies. With the help of airplanes, an international confederation of scientists, Wings of the World, arrests all warlords and restores civilization, ruling the world through violent pacifism like a world police. In the end, a new world is foreshadowed by the first flight to the moon. It's a relatively stiff and boring film, but nevertheless deserves a good look-see. There are a lot of other interesting and compelling works from the decade, so I encourage you to check out the many films and pieces of literature that came out of the Dirty Thirties and not just in terms of sci-fi. I'd like to thank my many sources for this week's episode, including Portalist.com, SciFiUs.com, ElectricLiterature.com, HuffPo, IMDB, and of course Wikipedia, your number one and only legally mandated trusted source. Next week's episode cranks up the nostalgia factor for me as we bust out our magnifying glasses in search of the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids franchise with guest comedian, the very funny, John O'Gindhart. We were originally just going to cover the first movie, but let's be honest. Rick Moranis is a goddamn national treasure, and the franchise is strong as fuck, so let's run the whole damn gambit. Why not? You can catch that episode airing Tuesday, April 4th from 8 to 9 a.m. only on Shady Pines Radio.
Download the free Shady Pines radio app for Android and iOS, or you can visit us online any old time at ShadyPinesRadio.com to gain access to the raddest content Portland and beyond has to offer. In the meantime, live long and prosper, my fellow nerds, by enjoying this hilarious set from guest comedian Jocelyn Boyer. Oh, and remember, for your dose of the ha-has around town, make sure to check out LaughsPDX.com, your resource for comedy in Portland. So cute. So freaking cute. Have you guys had your first fight yet? No. No? Are you reactive? Yeah, I'm looking at you, girl. Yeah, you! Are you reactive? I am. Maybe. <laughs> okay, no, you've humbled yourself in a fight. Okay, I see. You're like, I remember the three R's. When you react, you instantly regret it, and then you'll remember it forever. Have you ever been in an argument, and you say some shit, and you like, mic drop it, and you storm out? Right into the sliding screen door? <laughs> Can't stay mad. After that, you just humbled yourself. You're like, ah, okay. You win. You win this one. I get you. My mom, she was reactive as fuck. Like, she was psycho. So I grew up with, like, fist fights being the norm, frying pans going flying. We were poor, though, don't worry. It was like fake. It just came right off. <laughs> We were so poor. I used to be embarrassed about how poor we were. And when I met my best friend, I was like, I stayed the night at her house one time, and I said, where are we sleeping? And she said, you see that couch? We're sleeping on the floor behind it. And I said, ooh, I'm at home? Hell yes, this is a two-bedroom apartment with six people in it? Fuck yes, let's go. Cockroaches going around, I'm like, mm-hmm. Been here. We used to live in apartments, and I used to think that my parents just had the worst luck with landlords. It turns out they were grifters, okay? They would stop paying rent to buy the drugs. Yeah. I learned about this when I was going through family photos. I just made one photo of my mom. My mom's like, no, not that one. I was on crack. I was on heroin. Ooh, LSD. Nope, not that one. She even named drugs that I had no idea about. She's like, yep, yeah, I was pregnant on angel dust with that one. I was like, what? She goes, uh-huh. I you know what happens. Well, I wanted to twist my head off and jump out of the third story window. I said, check that one off my list. I'm never doing that. Can you imagine taking that drug and want to twist your fucking head off? No. No, he said, fuck no. So I just do shrooms and weed. I don't get reactive as much when they say dumb shit. Like, Jocelyn, you've taken 20 bong hits. Yeah, because you keep fucking talking. Thank you so much. My name is Jocelyn Moore. Keep it going.